From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're learning from our esteemed veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. And today, we're talking about ESG portfolios. ESG portfolios adhere to a more um, ethical standard of investing. Certain companies meet certain qualifications in order to be in order to be considered part of an ESG portfolio. And so Michael and Adam break down whether these funds are actually socially responsible or if this is just a marketing ploy. The conversation, of course, was hugely fascinating and a lot of fun. Guys, thank you so much for the 2020 year last year. We had such a great year with numbers. Our growth grew way more than we thought it would. We just want to extend our deep appreciation for your listenership and uh, look forward to more in the future. All right. Without further ado, guys, let's get to the show. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, how's it going? It's been a little bit. How's life? Doing well. How about yourself? Doing good. How about you, Adam? I'm doing awesome, man. Life is good. Had a good little uh, break and respite over the holidays and excited to be excited to be back with you guys. Did you uh, get anything good for Christmas? Uh, I think my kids got some good stuff for Christmas, which seems to be the... <laughs> the uh, trend these days, but it was really nice. It's fun to see them be excited. So yeah, it was great. So today we are talking about ESGs. Um, and this stands for environmental, social and governance and governance uh, funds. So these are portfolios that include funds that claim to be more socially responsible. They focus on green efforts. They treat their workers more ethically, so on. So ESGs now make up an estimated $40 trillion, up from $30 trillion just two years ago. Social index fund funds are now topping about $250 billion, which is about 20% of the total index fund total. Needless to say, they are pretty popular. Um, but today, we'd like to discuss whether or not ESGs are even that uh, ethical. So, Michael, why do some people question the ethicality of ESG portfolios? Uh, if I had to take a guess, I would say that for a lot of people, there's just a cynicism associated with anything financial services, you know, anything that the financial services industry does, uh, you can question whether or not they're just trying to get into your pocketbook. So um, mm -hmm. let's say that you want to invest in the S&P versus you want to invest in the S&P 500, but uh, a socially responsible version of it. Uh, and you compare two funds and you look and you realize the top 10 holdings don't differ that much. Uh, I think for a lot of people, there's simply a question of, well, is there really anything going on under the hood? Or is this just another attempt by financial advisors, by the financial services industry to get my money and uh, to make me feel good about something, but nothing's really changed? Yeah, Adam, there's two ways to look at it, isn't there? We could say either A, people are just trying to, they've just found another way to get into your pocketbook, as Michael said, or do you think that maybe these companies have been compelled to act more ethically and therefore these SMP have become more ethically you know, conscious? Do you think that that's the case or do you think Michael's case is more correct? Boy, it's a good question. I think it's a question of, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Um, I don't know if 
there are many companies out there that have set out to run themselves that would grade out well on an ESG index. However, mm-hmm. um, I think that there are many investors uh, who have become much more conscious and much more concerned with how they're investing uh, does impact a lot of these factors. And so I think as the demand for these types of uh, investments and the interest in investing in things that do grade out well from an ESG standpoint, I think as the demand for those things has risen, I think as a result, these companies have, um, you know, put an emphasis on that because they know it will attract capital and they know that it will, um, uh, you know, ultimately increase the, the price of their shares and the profitability of the shareholders. So um, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm cynical. Uh, I, I'm sure there are a handful of companies out there that absolutely do make that a priority, but I'm not sure that it's the, the corporations themselves or the, the socks themselves uh, leading the charge uh, because ultimately it's a more expensive way to do business currently. So um, mm-hmm. now I think the question you would ask yourself is, well, does that really matter? Ultimately, are we becoming more efficient uh, from an ESG perspective? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think for investors interested in ESG funds and ESG indexes, I think that's probably the ultimate question. Uh, are we making the world a better place? Are we becoming more sustainable? Um, and we should probably at some point address the difference between sustainable investing and ESG investing. Those are two different kind of kind of things, but in the same in the same ballpark. So I, I think that's ultimately the question for investors is, is this accomplishing the goal? So, Michael, do you think that there, uh, for you, what is the real clear line to what ethical investing actually is? Like, what, in your opinion, do you feel companies actually have to be doing in order to um, call themselves ethical? Well, I will say, let me just say this. I I won't give you an opinion because it's just that. It's an opinion and it's mine. Uh, Mm -hmm. it, It really, what we, what advisors need to focus on is what matters to clients. So for instance, uh, does the environment matter to you? Uh, Mm -hmm. Does it matter to you that you're investing in a company that is carbon neutral? Um, Does it it affect every industry equally? Are there entire industries that you might say, I'm not going to participate in that industry? Um, So it, it doesn't, it's not really appropriate for me to say, well, this is my opinion and you should all feel the same way because we're, we're all going to feel differently about those things. Um, what I will say is that if you rewound uh, back to like the 50s, um, I think that the corporate boards tended to operate in a way that they were graded not just on increase in share price, but in whether or not they had made the community that they lived in better, if they had made the lives of employees better, if they had met certain standards. Um, this wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't an ESG thing. It was simply boards had certain uh, kind of mandates that they were held to that they're, that were expected of them. And we've gotten away from that where we, uh, you know, started saying, well, the board is responsible to maximize shareholder wealth. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you destroy the environment, we don't care. If you source uh, goods from uh, places where they use slave labor, we don't care. Mm -hmm. And so 
the shift is really nothing more than a return to something that uh, was pretty prominent through, I would say, through through the 50s into the 60s in the U.S. anyway. Michael, you touched on something that I think is important for everyone to know, which is, you know, everyone that has any manager, any fund company that has an ESG fund, guess what their their criteria is? It's also their opinion. That's one of the, I, I think the, you know, mm-hmm. ESG investing is still a, a fairly new, um, let's call it a sector, a branch of investing. Um, and one of the issues with being early in its, in its life is there is no uh, standardization, right? There is no kind of uh, clear and, and concise rules for what does ESG mean, right? How do we qualify? How do we rank a, a company on an ESG vector? So, I think it's it falls on either the investor themselves or if you're working with an advisor, it you need to make sure that you're asking your advisor specific detailed questions because what you don't want to do is just you know if you're someone that cares heavily about um, you know I, I think one that that Michael mentioned is you know I don't want to invest in companies that um, are known to you know, um, exploit labor, right. In, mm-hmm. in let's say third world countries. Well, mm-hmm. if that's what you care about, let's not assume that you just buy the first or cheapest or whatever ESG fund or index you can find, because that might not be, you know, what they're building their fund around. They might be on a carbon neutral, um, approach or they might be on a sustainable materials approach, whatever the case is. So just make sure you're doing your research because there isn't a lot of, um, standardization in the, in the world of ESG funds right now. One of the things that I think we're going to include in the show notes, um, mm-hmm. some different organizations that are trying to bring standards. So there's a sustainability accounting standards board that uh, has a really interesting process that they use where they look and they say, well, OK, let's take things like uh, labor practices, supply chain management, mm-hmm. um, consumer goods are affected by that more than financial services. Mm-hmm. What? Well, yeah, you know, supply chain labor costs, you generally don't expect JP Morgan or asset builder or, you know, some financial services firm uh, to have issues with using uh, a supply chain that that is somewhat questionable. But if you're mm-hmm. a consumer goods, then, then you do. And so one of the things that's interesting is then the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board has created this, this map that says, so in this industry, you need to pay attention to this issue. If this is your issue, pay attention here. So that'll be in the show notes. But then there are some other uh, organizations, such as the Principles for Responsible Investment, um, that say, hey, we're trying to set some standards and we're trying to uh, create um, a level playing field so that we can all agree. Uh, There's another one called Global Reporting, uh, GRI, and we'll have links to both of those. But what, 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 Adam said is true. Um, you know, if you go back to the days where accounting standards were kind of questionable and you would have said, well, okay, we can all agree that that's an expense. And, and then you would have had somebody come along and say, well, I'm going to capitalize that expense. And somebody else was like, well, no, that's not it. And, and, and you would have, um, 
different ways that people would expense things. And so you would look and you would say, well, what's the impact of that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to somebody's uh, profits, to their value as a company? And you might not have been able to compare apples to apples. And so one of the things that the industry is doing that's valuable is they're starting to create these standards so that people can evaluate and compare company A to company B in a meaningful way. Michael, that's perfect. That's kind of the answer to the question I was going to ask and just wanted to make sure that that was the whole answer. I'll ask it, um, which is how can people vet their portfolios uh, to make sure that they're in line with their specific ethics alongside of talking to their advisor, visiting the websites you mentioned? Is there anything else that they can do? Yeah, there are. You know, I think uh, the article that you wrote, uh, it's up on our website. Maybe we'll have a link to it as well. But you mm-hmm. talked about going to organizations like Know the Chain. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting talking to my wife uh, about where we buy clothes. And she's a fairly frugal person. She's just going to, you know, pick up whatever she can at Old Navy or The Gap. Um, and doesn't really think about the fact that I think the, the statistic is something like 40 percent of all cotton worn in the U.S., was actually uh, at some point in the supply chain, uh, slave labor, forced labor, or mm. you know unfair labor practices uh, were used to produce that cotton. So mm. there are websites out there that look and say, "This is where you can buy clothes." Where these are the sixty percent of you know stores that don't use those practices, and so it's it's changed how we simply look for t-shirts, uh, buy, you know, shorts, socks, things like that. Um, and so I think if you are a consumer, that's one of the easiest things that you can do is just look and understand the supply chain of where things came from, uh, and make it a point to, uh, purchase items, purchase goods that match with your standards. All right. I have one final question, and it's going to be an overarching philosophical question, and I'm going to start with Adam. Adam, are you ready for this bombshell? I'm ready. I love it. (laughs) All right. Do you think morality is objective or subjective? (sighs) (laughs) You weren't kidding. You were not kidding. I would fall on the side of morality is objective. Um, I do think that there is a such thing as objective truth, right and wrong. Um, now, I think the question of who who defines that, of course, those are different perspectives. But I think fundamentally, if you ask yourself, it's so. In other words, what I'm telling you is, I'm not necessarily saying on the, on every given issue I know exactly where the line is, but I do ha- I do believe there is a line, if that makes sense. Absolutely, Michael. It's morality, objective or subjective? Well, so it's interesting because of COVID, uh, my office mate is my son. He's eighth grade and he is over there listening to this and he says it's objective. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess. Um, I, are, you, are, are you saying that I am cognitively on the level with your eighth grade? Show? <laughs> I'm saying maybe you're both right. I would say this. I agree with, I agree with both. Those uh, I agree with both Adam and Will that um, there are absolutes that I think that people 
can agree on. So um, I, I don't think that, I think very few people would be okay with slavery. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there would be questions around early manufacturing practices that Nike had where they improved the lives on a relative basis in, in certain developing economies. But we would have said, wow, those are still horrible living conditions. So I think it's hard to take a North American standard of living, which is by and large, the gold standard for how people want to live in the world today and say, well, unless you're providing that level of you're exploiting, pay, yeah. uh, then unless you're doing that, you're exploiting people. I would just say that's not true. So I think that there are some objective ethical lines that we would all agree with. I think there are a lot of gray areas. And so when you take Mm -hmm. a lot of these gray areas, that's where we tend to end up. I hate to say this, but we tend to end up othering people. You know, if you are less concerned with the environment, you look at anybody who's even slightly more concerned than you, and you can label them a tree hugger. uh, If you have significant concerns about the environment. You can look at anybody who, you know, accidentally doesn't recycle a plastic bottle and think that they're uh, one of the worst humans to ever walk the planet. And none of that is really helpful because there is, uh, there is a responsibility that I believe personally we have uh, for the earth to take care of the resources that it provides um, to provide, you know, the most, mm-hmm. uh, the, to, to live a life that leaves as small of a footprint as possible. Um, and so, you know, I say that, but I drive to Dallas in a car and, you know, I don't bike, I don't take a bus. Um, there are people who would probably say, you know, I should stand on the side of the road and ride share with somebody. And until I do that, I wouldn't meet their ethical standards. And so I think that those are the places where you get into subjectivity of is a company. And I think that's the dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that's what's important for us to remember. It's like I said, I'm more than willing to admit, I I do believe there's a line. I think where myself or anyone falls into danger is when we claim we are the arbiters of where that line is and it is unassailable. Yeah, And I think what is probably more true is that to find where these areas are takes time and it takes large groups of people, much like a price, right? Like how do we find a price in the market? Well, it's, it's the summation of all buys and sells of that investment finds an equilibrium. And we all agree that the cumulative input of all of our transactions has resulted in the, the proper price, right? Like the equilibrium fair price. Mm-hmm. Similar here. I think it's tough to say, well, what is the exact you know, proper way for a company to behave morally, right? Because for you to say, well, um, we need to become carbon neutral, even if that means you know, we're going to eat into 40% of our profits. Well, 
what do those profits allow you to do, right? I know there are tons of, you know, many companies are very charitable. They have charitable arms of their organizations. Um, those profits allow them to maintain an employee base and provide those employees a way to put food on their table. So are you eliminating their ability to do that? And what is the, the moral, um, you know, there's compromise, there's give and take for everything. So I think, um, for anyone to say, well, I am the arbiter of where that line is, where the balance between, you know, um, I am the uh -huh. objective, uh, uh, truth standard. for that, for that standard. Yeah. It becomes mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit dangerous. So I think humility is always good. Um, and I think having an open mind is always good too. um, uh, being open to these, these new objectives. But ultimately I think, you know, in our line of work, the question is, is it, increasing shareholder value or decreasing shareholder value, right? Is, is investing mm -hmm. in this way, um, uh, ultimately, and, and you can measure that value in a lot of ways, right? It's not always on paper in terms of returns. Um, but is that fund both providing returns that are sufficient? And if it, they are lesser returns, are they providing, um, you know, that moral component in a sufficient way that, that it makes sense, right? That that trade-off is worthwhile. And Michael, do you want to talk more about the ESG activity increasing shareholder fund value? Yeah, I was trying to pivot there yeah. to give it a little handoff. That was nice. That was nice. Yeah, it, it it's really interesting. Um, I think there's there's kind of an assumption that if you have an ESG fund, that you're going to have lower returns. And so one of the things that I think we pride ourselves on as a firm is you know the academic research that goes on. Um, we don't base our investments on emotions or thoughts or the latest pundits. Um, and so for us, an ESG investment would have to be something that makes sense from an academic standpoint. So uh, the other day I was listening to a couple of guys. One of them's won a Nobel Prize, uh, Gene Fama, Ken French, and they were talking about the impact uh, that dimensional, it's a fund company, but the impact that they have by supporting different initiatives. And so they have a bunch of case studies um, and they provide an annual report. Uh, we just got their 2020 report. It'll be in the show notes. So you can get it on our website. Um, but one of the things that they do is they have these case studies. And what's really interesting is a board may, instead of wanting to increase shareholder value, may want to increase, for instance, management compensation. And so mm -hmm. imagine if you uh, are in the middle of COVID, and so this is one of the examples they gave from this past year, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, your share price prices crater and somebody comes in and there's a hostile takeover bid. Well, the management of the company uh, to protect their own positions for whatever other reasons may be very much opposed to a takeover bid, but the takeover bid might greatly increase the shareholder wealth. The bid is, is going to raise the share price. And so the management... Uh, of the company, the board of directors influenced by the management, but also having on the board members of the management of the company uh, would vote against, you know, 
a takeover so that they can protect their own position. It's something that's actually, it's called a poison pill and it's, you know, kind of, it's not super common, but it is out there. And so uh, what dimensional does is they say, Hey, just FYI, we are going to vote against these people being on the board. We're going to then vote against these people being on any board because we look at it as a character issue. If you even though you're on the board to promote, you know, shareholder value, if you would instead promote any other value, including preservation of your own paycheck, then we will not only vote against you here, but we will follow you around and we will vote against you wherever else you go. So like if you're on another board, we're just going to assume that you shouldn't be on that board either, because if you're not going to promote shareholder value here, we're going to assume you wouldn't promote shareholder value there either. And uh, they are very, very strong in that area. And mm -hmm. the results of a lot of these efforts have ended in people uh, you know, being removed from the board by people uh, have resulted in uh, you know, poison pills being uh, not executed, essentially not swallowed. And so there is actually a case to be made that says, hey, it's not just long-term uh, companies that are carbon neutral make me feel better about my investment. Uh, there are some real, mm -hmm. you know, real-time today uh, benefits to having an ESG component in your portfolio uh, and having people who are looking out uh, for things that matter to you. Absolutely. So the bottom line is do your homework, you know, decide where your values are and stop yelling at people. You say that's about right? <laughs> I, I definitely agree. I think what Adam said about, hey, I don't need to be the final arbiter for everybody else is true. Um, I want to be investing in a way that uh, is ethically and morally responsible for me. Um, and I certainly don't want to be, uh, you know, governing the way everybody else. It was why at the beginning I said I'd really rather not give an opinion because uh, what my opinion is shouldn't hold that much weight uh, as mm -hmm. a fiduciary. I want to be doing what's in the best interest of my client. And so if that involves making an ESG investment or avoiding certain ESG investments, um, that's what we would do for them. Perfect. Adam, anything you want to add on to that before we get out of here? No, I, I would agree completely. Our job is to do what is in the best interest of our clients. And I think that's what you know, what we rely on and what listeners need to know is that if your advisor, if you work with one, relies on your input. So, you know, do your research into the ESG community. If it's something that you're interested in, raise it to your advisor and get their, get their input, get their feedback and get their, their insight on it. Perfect. Guys, thank you so much for your time and insight as usual. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Jared. Yes. If you have a question for either Michael or Adam concerning this topic or anything else, please visit assetbuilder.com slash podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every single episode. 
This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com. Thank you.